Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show dedicated to policy analysis in international affairs. We start today's episode with a brief examination of recent international developments, beginning with the current situation in Venezuela, where there is severe political unrest stemming from a vote last month that will allow President Maduro to essentially replace the opposition-dominated National Assembly with a new 545-member constituent assembly filled with his supporters. Now, this is merely the latest in a series of political developments that opposition members contend are creating a dictatorship in the country. Rhetoric from the United States towards Venezuela ramped up last week when President Trump stated that he would not rule out possible military intervention in Venezuela. For Venezuela. And by the way, I'm not going to rule out a military option. We have many options for Venezuela. This is our neighbor. This is, you know, we're all over the world. And we have troops all over the world in places that are very, very far away. Venezuela is not very far away. And the people are suffering. And they're dying. We have many options for Venezuela, including a possible military option, if necessary. Now, beyond further fraying diplomatic relations between the two countries, there are also concerns that Trump's comments, as you heard there, might have weakened regional pressure on the Venezuelan government by giving President Maduro a chance to intensify his frequently made allegations that the United States is plotting with the opposition, calling for his removal. Now, when we look at the, the situation in Venezuela domestically, the implications of the continued unrest are concerning. And the situation has the potential to devolve into outright civil war, as drastic shortages in food and medicine, runaway inflation, and a rise in organized crime and related murders have led to almost daily riots against an unpopular Maduro government. To date, 102 people have died in violent protests. Internationally, the situation risks spreading regional instability and threatening Colombia's historic peace deal with the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia. Specifically, armed groups like the National Liberation Army and the People's Liberation Army are particularly strong near the Venezuelan border, where it has become convenient for these groups to retreat, reorganize, strengthen and eventually cross back into Colombia. The region could also be facing a refugee crisis, with many Venezuelans looking to flee the worsening political and economic situation. Threats of nuclear war drew condemnation from a number of U.S. lawmakers. More than 60 House Democrats urged Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to de-escalate tensions, calling Trump's words belligerent and reckless. A group of Korean-American elected officials sent Trump a letter calling for diplomacy and dialogue. On Thursday, North Korea responded to Trump's latest threats in a statement aired on state media. Moving from the so-called land of grace now to the quote-unquote hermit kingdom, a report by the U.S. government's Defense Intelligence Agency indicates that North Korea has successfully miniaturized a nuclear warhead that is small enough to mount onto missiles. And in light of continued missile testing from North Korea, the U.S. response has been punctuated by President Trump's remarks that any further aggression by North Korea would be met with, quote, fire, fury, and frankly, power the likes of which the world has never seen before. In response, 
North Korea has announced that it is reviewing a plan to strike the U.S. territory of Guam. Now, in examining the situation between North Korea and the U.S., it certainly goes without saying that the implications of nuclear tensions are severe. But first and foremost, however, and probably may seem, the escalation of confrontational rhetoric between the United States and North Korea increases the possibility of nuclear war, which would of course have far-reaching global consequences. Second, and perhaps underemphasized, is the implication on the American position with regards to the Iran nuclear program. Now, it's no secret that the Trump administration is not a fan of the Iranian nuclear deal, and it's possible that the situation in North Korea and the reawakening of the threat of nuclear war, however improbable, could increase support for a re-examination of the Iran nuclear deal. And now, to our main topic for today's episode, we're discussing the ongoing Brexit negotiations. We're asking you to go back on your Yeah, I know, yeah, I know. Exactly. Am I allowed to say I no? I, 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 I'm going to say it will be Remain. Okay. I, and I'm going to be wrong. That was David Long, professor of international affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs who gave us his Brexit prediction when he joined us to discuss the referendum last year. The Brexit referendum was one of the defining news stories of 2016. Now, nearly 14 months later, negotiations are underway for the UK to exit the EU. Now, ultimately, both sides want a deal that works practically for all parties, but no one wants to come out of this losing political or economic ground. The fate of these negotiations hold a great deal of economic uncertainty especially for the UK, and they raise important questions, particularly with regards to international trade. To give us an EU perspective on Brexit negotiations, we are joined today by Dr. Akeem Hurlman, who is currently serving as the Director of the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, and as the Associate Director of the Center for European Studies, both of which are housed at Carleton University. He holds the Jean Monnet Chair for Democracy in the European Union, and is one of the leading Canadian scholars of European integration. All right, so I'm here with Dr. Hurlman. Thank you very much for joining us this evening on Policy Talks. My pleasure. So uh, when you last joined us, we were discussing the rise of nationalism uh, in Europe and the potential implications for elections in France and the Netherlands. Um, and just off the bat, quickly, I, I wanted to see uh, if you could share with us some of your thoughts on how those elections played out, given the, the discussion that we had. Well, I think they are correctly interpreted as being a setback for the popula popula populist uh, uh, movement in Europe uh, because in the Netherlands, uh, the Freedom Party of Gerd Wilders did not do as well as predicted and in France, Marine Le Pen did not win the presidency, but Emmanuel Macron did and he did this with a um, program that was actually quite decisively pro-European integration and advocated some uh, fundamental reforms of the French economic system more in a liberal, some might say neoliberal direction. So that uh, clearly indicates that there are limits to the appeal of populism in Europe. And I think to some extent um, the opponents of populism were actually helped by the election of Donald Trump in the in the U.S. and by uh, the very chaotic first months of his presidency, which um, uh, clearly showed uh, voters that lots is at stake and this might not be an option worth trying. It's certainly, uh, well, perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong, Europe, Europe has, a, has a lot of history, um, but given everything that's happened in the last couple of years, is it fair to say that now is an exciting time to be 
to be studying Europe? Absolutely, but I must say it's always an exciting yeah. time. Okay. <laughs> so on that note, um, obviously in this episode, um, we're talking about uh, Brexit negotiations. And just off the bat, um, I'd like your thoughts. Uh, is there, when we talk about the Brexit negotiations between the European Union and the United Kingdom, uh, is there a definitive likely scenario for the future of EU-UK trade relations? Well, there's a likely scenario, but absolutely no certainty. So the Brexit negotiations will be conducted in two stages. Uh, they have started in June, and uh, what is being discussed now are essentially the modalities of the divorce. Uh, they are not yet talking about the future trade relationship. That was the EU's insistence to have these two stages to first settle the divorce, and we can get uh, into the issues that are um, discussed there in a moment. And then the next discussion will be about the future trade relationship. And uh, that discussion could actually go on for quite a while, even beyond the Brexit deadline. So we have to think about transitory measures, uh, transition periods, and so on. I would still consider it likely that the UK and the EU will be able to agree on a fairly far-reaching trade agreement, maybe even based to some extent on the CETA agreement between Canada and the EU. But we have seen in that agreement that it was actually quite difficult to negotiate, that it was heavily politicized, that it hasn't even yet been fully ratified on the European side. So that already um, indicates some of the complexities and challenges to any such agreement. Um, so could you dig a little bit deeper for us and tell us, you know, so the UK and the EU have the potential to, to negotiate this very far-reaching um, understanding in terms of trade. Uh, what is the likely, in your opinion, I guess, what are the likely implications of that agreement or what could we potentially see in terms of how the UK and the EU relate to each other? Right. In so trade? initially we had this debate about hard Brexit or soft Brexit, where soft Brexit would have meant that the UK joins the European economic area and is essentially a member of the EU in anything but name uh, because uh, the member states of the European economic area, such as Norway, have uh, um, full access to the single market, but also have to accept um, all of the obligations of being in the single market, particularly um, accept free mobility of EU citizens into their territory, and they have to pay into the EU budget. That would have been the soft Brexit option, but the British government has been very explicit that this is not what they are seeking. Their preferred option would have been um, access to the EU single market without having to accept free mobility. So from the European Union's perspective, the single market has four components, free movements of goods, services, capital, and people. The British wanted the first three, but not the fourth. And the EU said that's not negotiable. Uh, the single market is a package. You are in it either completely or not at all. Um, and this is what has m uh, brought us to the situation where we are now, where it's clear the UK will not be in the single market, but it has to negotiate a new economic relationship with the EU, which of course will be based to some extent on the fact that they are now in one single market. So we are not starting from a situation where there's no established economic relationship. There's lots of 
interests uh, in protecting the established economic relationship. But uh, this will all be uh, negotiated and we'll have to see what the outcome is. And so given the complexities of, of these negotiations, what what is the approach that the EU uh uh, is taking to these negotiations? Mm -hmm. Well, as I mentioned, the EU's approach has been to say uh, we have to negotiate in two stages. The British didn't want that initially. Uh, the EU wants to first settle the divorce, if you will, and that concerns two main issues, three depending on how you count it. First, it concerns the budgetary balance, so how much does the UK still have to pay to... Uh, pay its share for programs that are being undertaken. Secondly, um, they are negotiating the rights of each other's citizens after Brexit. So what will happen to EU citizens who live in the United Kingdom and to British citizens who live in the EU? What will be their rights mm -hmm. going forward? And the third issue that is being uh, discussed right now is the situation in Ireland and the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. These issues are the ones that the EU wants to settle first before they get to trade. The UK would have liked to combine this all in part because then they could have used the budgetary balance as a side payment for other types of deals. So it would have been easier from their perspective to negotiate. Now uh, the financial issues are resolved first and then all of the trade issues will be up on the agenda. So on the first point that you raised there, um, is it correct? Am I correct in saying that th this has been framed as the quote divorce bill mm -hmm. and 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 i there's there seems to be obviously this is part of the negotiations there isn't a consensus right now of what that amount should be if if there is an amount at all mm -hmm. um why why is there such a discrepancy why is this not a not a clear figure of exactly what is owed to whom Right. Well, it depends on how you calculate that. The EU has a seven-year budget plan, uh, and, and that is how they calculate uh, their long-term budget. And this will run until 2020. So that's quite convenient because it ends around the time when the UK will leave. Uh, but it's very, um, it's by no means straightforward to calculate um, which... Uh, um, financial contributions should be taken into account. How about pensions for British employees or for, for other employees really also who work in the European institutions and have worked for the UK? Obviously, the UK will have to contribute to these pensions to some extent. On the other hand, in the UK, they've raised the question, what about the, the assets of the EU, the buildings and so on? Do we get a share on that? So these are the issues that, that okay. are being controversial and why this is complicated. The EU has presented the British with a proposal, a bill, so to speak. The British have so far been reluctant to present their counter-proposal. They said, well, first we want to listen and to critique what you are saying. But now it has been announced for this week uh, that they will suddenly have, uh, finally have to show their cards and, mm -hmm. and see what they want. Um, the... Um, Hardcore Brexiters think that there should be no divorce bill at all, that the UK should just walk away and should just be able to walk away from the EU. But um, by um, insisting on this two-stage negotiation, the EU has that made very difficult because the British obviously want a trade deal, so they can't afford to upset the EU too much in these financial negotiations. So then when we consider these negotiations... Um is or will there be a clear winner uh, 
and loser from Brexit. Is this going? To, is this a zero sum game? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. Uh, but there will obviously be winners and losers. Um, in the end, both sides have an interest in continuing the economic relationship because it's very deep. The two markets are very integrated because they were part of a single market. So if there were no solution, that would be very bad, both for British for the British economy, but also for the economy in a number of important EU member states, not least Germany, which is the biggest. Um, um, importer from the British perspective. Uh, so therefore, there's a shared interest in making some kind of deal about the future relationship. But depending on how this deal looks, there will obviously be winners and losers. The financial industry in London could be a big loser because the question is whether they will still have the ability to trade in euro. So then, um, is there... Uh, is there one side versus the other that has a stronger negotiating hand in this case? Does the Is the EU in a stronger position in these negotiations than the UK? I think it is because it's the much larger market um, and um, uh, the UK exports about 40% of its goods to the EU and this could not possibly be quickly replaced by other markets. So the UK is very dependent on having some kind of access to the European markets. Obviously, yes, there are also so um, companies in the EU that are very dependent on the British market, uh, but it's a smaller share overall. Excellent. Um, we're going to take a quick break, um, but when we return, um, we'll uh, continue our, our discussion on uh, the future post-Brexit uh, negotiations with Dr. Hellman. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. So we're back with Dr. Hurlman, um, and I want to talk a little bit now uh, beyond Brexit negotiations. So ultimately, when these negotiations are complete uh, and the future um, do you foresee any uh, potential benefits or opportunities for the UK after Brexit, um, specifically when looking at international trade? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if we consider the world as a as a a, a system of global value chains, um, are there any benefits or drawbacks to to being an autonomous trading partner versus being part of a single market like the European Union? Well, um, there are some people who say that it's it's a big chance for the United Kingdom to be able to negotiate its own free trade deal with other partners. So I, I'm uh, teaching a course on Brexit in the fall term and I just reviewed some of that literature. It tends to be very neoliberal um, and says, well, it would actually be beneficial to have um, very, very low, if not zero tariffs for our trade with the entire world. That way we wouldn't be um, tied to EU trade deals, which often protect vested interest in other member states. So we could be much more flexible in negotiating these trade deals. 
Um, that is not an implausible position, but there's a lot of lot of caveats. First of all, um, does the EU really does the UK sorry really want a policy of uh, absolute free trade with everyone? Are there not domestic interests to prevent that? Um, secondly, um, obviously the EU remains the most proximate, the most important market uh, for the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, obviously it's also a smaller negotiating partner than the European Union. So w when and if the UK negotiates uh, international e economic agreements with other partners, it will have less leverage than the United uh, than the uh, European Union has as a market of more than 500 million people. So um, the benefits and costs might even out. I do not see in international trade any huge benefit uh, for the um, United Kingdom. Um, but in some sectors, maybe they, they will actually be able to, to reap some benefits. Do you foresee a, a reorientation, I suppose, of, of UK imports and exports vis-a-vis -vis other countries? So, I mean, you, you've mentioned that, that a significant portion of trade uh, coming in and out of the UK is, is with the European Union. Mm -hmm. uh, Post-Brexit, would there be do you foresee any changes uh to that will will uh trade with the eu potentially go down as the uk explores other avenues is that a is that a possibly that's situation? part of the that's part of the economic debate i'm not myself an economist but um the proponents of brexit who say that it will be beneficial uh they say well if the eu do, uh, doesn't want our products anymore makes them more expensive uh, through trade barriers then we just sell to other areas of the world but that uh does of course uh, neglect that uh, uh, proximity of markets is a very important factor. Uh, so depending on the type of market access that the UK will negotiate with the EU, there might be some changes in trade patterns, but I would actually predict that there will be a fairly far-reaching uh, trade deal, at least for the trades in goods and services, um, that uh, will actually uh, then mean that uh, these trade patterns will not change dramatically. Was the UK, I guess, uh, was there ever an argument put put forth in the lead up to the Brexit referendum that the UK was somehow at a at a disadvantage by by being part of the single market? I'm I'm trying to look at this from yeah. from the the trade avenue, saying mm -hmm. okay, well, the UK does so much trade with the EU, the single market in the EU, they have a little bit more leverage given their size to create these free trade deals. I guess why mess with a good thing? Was the UK not in a good position yeah, when they were well, part of the single market? Uh, in, for, for most voters, the economic arguments pointed towards remain in the EU, and also the great majority of economists, having studied this, uh, said that it will be economically beneficial for the UK to stay. But there's this minority position that says the EU's trade deals are bad for the UK because they are uh, they protect vested interests in other member states. And if only we were more flexible, we could uh, make better deals. And I guess ultimately, uh, regardless of, of where the arguments uh, fell on either side, we had a referendum or, or the UK had a referendum and they, they got a result um, and it was, uh, it was to leave. Um, so that's the reality that, that uh, the UK finds itself in now. Um, you mentioned earlier CETA, um, which is uh, officially known as the Comprehensive and Economic Trade Agreement. Um, which is essentially um, the the Canadian trade agreement with the the European Union. Um, 
Is it clear cut right now, or is this part of the ongoing negotiations, what the impact of Brexit is going to have with regards to the applicability of CETA to the UK? Uh, CETA will end uh, in trade with the UK when the UK leaves the European Union because this is an agreement negotiated between Canada um, and the EU. So after um, the UK leaves the um, European Union, they have now declared just this week that they do not want to remain in the custom union, not even for a transitory period. So from 2019, they will be freed, uh, but also obliged to negotiate then their own trade agreements with external partners. So the British and the Canadian sides will have to sit down to negotiate a successor agreement uh, uh, for CETA for Canada-UK trade. I would predict that CETA is a good starting point for these negotiations, but there might be some, some differences. Is there So is that completely then, that's completely off the table? Is there any appetite or any opportunity then to... to put some kind of clause in the Brexit negotiations or the Brexit um, to allow the UK to somehow latch on to CETA in, in some way, shape or form? Um, well, there, there was initially debate in the UK that they might uh, want to stay in the customs union for at least a transitional period, which would have meant that the EU's external trade agreements continue to apply at least for a while. Uh, but that has now been decided that this, uh, at least that's what the government declared, will not happen. Uh, so with that, it just means that CETA no longer applies to the UK. But obviously there's nothing that would prevent Canada and the UK from taking the CETA agreement and say, okay, let's use this as our starting point for um, framing our new um, agreement. And then Canada will have to decide whether they are willing to make quite quite as many concessions to the UK uh, uh, with this leverage uh, argument. Obviously, Canada's trade with the EU is heavily UK-centered. So Canada has a strong interest in uh, quickly coming up with a successor agreement for CETA. You mentioned earlier um, the, uh, the situation that's going to arise um, from Brexit with regards to Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't know, uh, for me in the, the run-up to this episode, it's not something I'd actually thought about, but as it currently stands, the uh, the UK um, is quite literally, an, a, well, not a single island, but a couple of islands onto itself. Uh, once Brexit is, it is, is complete, the United Kingdom is now going to have a physical land border mm -hmm. with the, the European Union, that being re the, 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 the Republic of Ireland. Um, can you... Tell us a little bit of uh, about um, the 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 special circumstances that that are uh, going to be at play here. Yes, sure. So um, I think it's pretty universally accepted that membership in the European Union has been a decisive factor in uh, make in, in guaranteeing the success of the Good Friday Agreement, um, which uh, ended uh, the uh, civil war in Northern Ireland about uh, the. Uh, um, whether Northern Ireland should be part of the Republic of Ireland or should remain part uh, of the United Kingdom. Because uh, since both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland are member states in the European Union, the border just did not have much of a significance. And that allowed to down 
play this issue to say, well, maybe for daily life, it doesn't really matter whether Northern Ireland is part of the Republic or part of the UK, because we can just move freely between uh, these two territories. And this is the big challenge of having this, uh, this land border between the EU and the UK after Brexit. I think that is being um, quite widely acknowledged and uh, the UK does not have an interest in making this a very hard border for fear of just reigniting uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland. But uh, this is easier said than done because at the same time they want to control um, economic flows in and out of their country. They want to control migration flows. How do you do that if you don't have a border? Uh, so the question is, what? Uh, uh, how can how can this circle be squared? Um, how can at the same time there be a, a, a relatively invisible border between the north and the south of uh, Ireland? But but the UK has the degree of sovereignty and control over its borders that it wants. And I haven't seen really any convincing um, uh, answers to that question. People talk a lot about technical solution. So I guess that means that you can register your license plate, whatever, and can just drive through. But how that would work with uh, the British ambition to control migration, also irregular migration, uh, to control the flow of goods and so on, that is something that, that is, is not clear to me and that will have to be negotiated. And, and lastly, I just want to, to finish on, on this point, given that we're talking about now um, the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Is there, are there any implications on, on that border and the situation and the historical situation in Ireland? Um, are there any implications with that, given that the Conservative Party now is in a coalition with, um, and I've forgotten the acronym, a, a hardline party um, from, from Northern Ireland. Yeah, the, is the Democratic Unionist Party. Yeah, yes, th the that, DUP, yeah. Um, that is a problem in the Irish situation on a variety of levels, um, uh, mainly because the UK government is supposed to be a neutral arbiter over the devolved governance arrangements in Northern Ireland, where the DUP, however, is the largest um, Protestant party. So they are the British government is now um, propped up by one of the parties that is uh, um, that, that they at the same time will have to potentially play a neutral arbiter role with. So that is a challenge for just the governance of the of the complicated uh, devolution process in Northern Ireland. As far as Brexit is concerned, um, there might be a benefit in having the uh, DUP play a role because uh, this party does see the Northern Irish relationship and does not want to see a hard border being erected between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So um, in, in that respect, that might be an advantage that this interest is, is being taken seriously, clearly by the British government. Mm. Well, uh, obviously, um, a lot has happened since the referendum vote last year, and uh, a lot is is yet to come uh, as we move forward on the, uh, the two-year time frame, I guess, until uh, June 2019. Um, 
It's uh, actually March 2019. Oh, March 2019, March, right, the, right. In March, they formally uh, requested That's right. to withdraw. Yeah. That's right, March 2019, so even less time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so lots uh, left to happen. Um, but uh, Dr. Homan, we thank you very much for coming in and sharing a little bit of insight as, uh, as we've examined uh, the Brexit negotiations thus thank far. You. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter. I'd also like to make a quick announcement that we will be hosting a trivia night at the beginning of September here in Ottawa to kick off our fall session. Stay tuned for more details on our Facebook page and Twitter. We all hope to see you there. I'd like to conclude the episode today by thanking the research team that put all of this together. Eugene So, Shetha Ali, Kenneth Boddy, and our producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks.